Today, uh, we're going to spend some time remembering, as Christ has asked us to do, to remember Him. And uh, you know, it, it's it's one of those things. You have a loved one, and that loved one is going away, and that loved one says, "Remember me." It's like, how can you not remember? When we think of Christ and all that He's done for us, how could we not remember? And so, I know the value of the re- the reminder, and the, this setup in front of us is a good reminder of uh, what He has done. But uh, I would hope that uh, we didn't need prompting on remembering what He has done for us. So today we're going to do that. Um, there are two places you're going to need to be, and the first one is in Luke 22. Luke 22. The other one will be Isaiah 53. Luke 22 is where I'd like to begin. Right around the middle of the chapter, verse 14 or so on. So today, this, there, are, there are two things that come to my mind when I think of a communion service. Here we have the opportunity to uh, have this service maybe four, sometimes five times a year. Next, next year is five. There are actually five five Sunday months next year. And um, there are two things that really come to my mind every time I participate in a communion service. And the one aspect is how great is our sin. And the other is how great is our Savior. And these are two themes that have to go together uh, when we consider the cup and and the drink and the bread and all that he's done for us. Uh, How great is our sin, and how great is our Savior. And that's going to be our focus here this morning, especially on this one concept. I call it taking responsibility. All right? Taking responsibility. Let's have a word of prayer first, though. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for what you have done for us. Uh, We know, Lord, from your word that uh, you have died for us. We understand that historically, we understand that biblically, theologically as well. All these things we have come to appreciate, and we do stop and thank you. We do not know what it is to die for someone else, or to die for someone else's sin, even more than that. But that is what you have done for us. And today, when we set our our minds on this today, I pray that you will work in our hearts, And if there be things in there that need to be made right, uh, we know that you're the one to talk to. So guide us through our examination of your word today. Draw us close to yourself and give us a greater appreciation uh, today for what you have done for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Taking responsibility. How, How likely is it to find people willing to take responsibility in this day and age? Take, for example, a simple little thing like an accident scene. How many times do people jump out of their car, go running out saying, I did it, I did it, I did it? Usually, if they're following some sort of training, perhaps you were taught this at one time, your insurance agent says, oh, make sure you never say anything. All right? Don't, don't admit to your guilt, or even if you don't, don't say a word. Just don't say a word. Get out your driver's license. Get out your insurance card. Just just let things fall in their place. But, you know, 
when you think about it, and maybe you've even seen it over the years, sometimes they're put write-ups in, in articles or magazines of excuses that go with accidents and what's actually caused the accident. It's always somebody else's fault or somebody or something's fault. There's, there's always something else to blame. Uh, you could see your situation from a different light, perhaps, than what everyone else saw. Uh, that color wasn't exactly red. Um, it was, you know, we've got all kinds of various things. Maybe it's something I ate that kept me up all night, and, you know, that's at fault. Or um, somebody else is always more accountable. If only they were paying attention, they would have seen you coming through that intersection, Right? There's all kinds of ways we look at things. Uh, either way, pointing fingers are easy. That's a very easy thing to do. Over the years, we have had a great number of books and articles written on the concept of who is responsible for the death of Christ. Some say, well, uh, the Jews were responsible for his death. And, you know, you can prove that from God's word easily. Some people would say, no, the Romans the Romans were the ones responsible for his death. And, yeah, you could find verses to back that up, too. Uh, the high priests, definitely the high priests, right? We would put the blame on them. Uh, the Pharisees, yeah. Sadducees, yeah. You could start a whole list of people. There are plenty of candidates. And what we would prefer to think is that it was all their fault. Right? And not ours. And not ours. However, what if the responsibility was directed toward us? Would it be true? It's my intention this morning, we're going into Isaiah 53, and uh, there are quite a number of, of great themes in Isaiah 53. And my desire would be to just spend weeks, you know how I am, weeks on Isaiah 53, and I thought of a way to do that. You will get it every fifth Sunday. We will work, work our way through Isaiah 53, okay? It's only going to take two and a half years, I think. Uh, but we will, we will work on Isaiah 53. When we come to this table, I want to bring us back to that place where it shows what Christ has done for us. But um, in that, uh, that investigation of that chapter, I begin here in Luke 22. And here we are in the upper room the night before Jesus Christ is arrested in the garden. You can picture him at the table here, reclining around the table with his disciples. He's sharing with them uh, some things that they really didn't want to hear. He's sharing with them the fact that uh, one of them is going to betray them. He's already washed their feet. Uh, he's already started to talk about the fact that he's going to die. And there's resistance in the room. There's all kinds of conflict anyway. They came into the room that way because they were arguing who was the greatest on their way up the steps into the door. And so as he is reclining around the table with them, in verse number 14, it says, The hour had come. The hour had come. You know, for us, if we were sitting at the table, we'd be in total ignorance of what the next 24 hours would bring. But Jesus had complete understanding of what the next 24 hours was bringing. And there the hour has come. And he's reclining at the table and with his apostles, and he says 
in verse number 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, it will, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and said to them, This is my body. Now, you may be the underlining kind of person, or you may be the kind who mentally makes a note so you don't forget it, or some other way that you remember something to mark it as significant. In this verse, there is something quite significant coming your way. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Those two words are striking, aren't they? They are for you. My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you, there it is again, is the new covenant in my blood. Twice he brings up that same statement. For you. For you. Given for you. Poured out for you. If you stop and just look carefully at the words in front of you, can, can, we, can we fathom the significance here? His betrayal within a few hours, less even, was for you. His arrest in the garden is for you. His trial, which will extend through the night, including the beatings and all that go on, were for you. His death on a cross for you. Those are stunning words to put next to those events. For you. But that's what he said. Now, keep, you can keep a bookmark right here because I intend to come right back to this. But travel back to Isaiah 53 now. Isaiah 53. We're going to underscore this for you concept through this book and see our, our responsibility written on these pages. Verse number one, as Isaiah begins this beautiful chapter, says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? How many times have you heard the message of the death of Christ on your behalf? You probably can't give me a number, I know. But it's been many years, hasn't it been? We, uh, we can trace it, and I, we, we don't come up with numbers, but we're saying, yeah, we're familiar with this. Obviously we are. We've shared this message over and over and over again. He says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The message of the Savior. What he has done for us. To whom has that been revealed? Do you realize how privileged we are to have heard the gospel? 
to have heard it in our language, to have it communicated to us and so that we might know what Christ has done. Somebody has once said that Isaiah 53 is the Bible in miniature. Others have said, no, it's a, it's a gospel in its essence. But really, I think when I step back from it, it's a story of what God can do. It mentions his arm in verse number one. His arm. Arm speaks of strength, power, might. This is not about what we can do. This is about what he has done. The message we declare is, is real simple. And the gospel teaching is biblical. It's on the pages. That we are helpless. We are hopeless. That we are strengthless. We are a sinful people. The power of the gospel does not reside in us. It is God's power. It's what God can do. We did not manufacture this message. This is a message given so when Paul's writing Corinthians chapter 1, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us it is the, it, who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's what God can do, right? This is the picture we have set before us. And so I know you've heard the message. You've heard the report over and over again. But that's not what he asked in verse number 1. He says, who has believed our message? Who has believed it? Who has believed it? This is where we begin. The first aspect of the message that is proclaimed is to believe what God has said. And do you know where he starts? He starts with our sinfulness, which is incredible. The fact that uh, we are sinful and we deserve God's wrath. Do we believe that? Or would we prefer to take that responsibility and pass it on to somebody else? Oh, somebody else has caused this, right? Let's blame Adam. Let's blame Eve. Or the good old-fashioned one. Of course, the devil made me do it. We're quick to pass the blame on this whole point. There must be somebody else to blame. There, there must be a way we can shield our own guiltiness. There must be. We hope to. We'd like to. But when we start into this chapter, God doesn't uh, hesitate to expose to us our sinfulness. Nor does he hesitate to express his wrath. But I'm glad those are not the two only points in this chapter. Because the third one is the fact that we have a Savior. Christ who intercedes for us, who, who has dealt with our sins, who satisfies God's wrath, and who intercedes on our behalf. So this is just a, a three-part concept to set before you today. And we start with our sinfulness, and it's not an attractive list. I can't make it pretty, I'm sorry. As much as I'd like to, to do something or even wrap a pretty bow on it, I can't do it. When I see what God has recorded in this chapter, in verse number 4, Verse number 5, verse number 6, verse number 8. We're going to see those words before us as to the nature of our sinfulness. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, 
Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. By the way, that's pointing the finger in another direction. Okay? Verse number 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Four alarming little verses, folks. The list begins with a single phrase that you probably have seen pop up over and over and over again. When it came to grief, in verse 4, it was our grief. When it came to sorrows, in verse number 4, it was our sorrow. When it came to the transgression, in verse 5, whose was it? It says ours in front of it, doesn't it? When it came to iniquities, in verse 5, whose was it? Ours, it says. He keeps saying that throughout the passage. Every time he lists a sin, he puts that our in front of it. He does that. This is our list. This is what he wants to reveal. He gives us the word grief in verse number 4. If you have an NIV, you might have the word infirmities. The root word has the idea of being weak or sick or afflicted. Um, as the commentaries get moving and the, the, um, the sources pop out which relate to this word, it goes beyond just a mere sickness like, boy, do I, I just have a sore throat. You know, it goes to a severe condition a severely wounded, incurable type of individual, uh, that certainly leads to grief, doesn't it? When you consider such a condition like that, to be incurably, severely wounded, to be afflicted, sick, and weak, it causes one to go faint or limp. Um, this is the picture of grief. Who does it belong to? Us. Us. What a bad way to start. You know, when you're already this bad off, how, how is it going to get better? This is the first step. He adds to it sorrow. It's our sorrow again. Sorrow is that which, which causes pain. The anguish of the mind, the anguish of the body. Someone once said that sorrow is the consequence of sin. I think it's certainly on that list, isn't it? How much sorrow did Adam and Eve have before they ate of the fruit? We think of all the things that Adam and Eve didn't know before they ate of the fruit. Put on that list these. Death, pain, sin, grief, sorrow. No, Satan's temptation was quite incredible when you think about it. He says, the day you eat of it, you will know good and evil. Well, they already knew good. So what do they have to gain? They learned evil, and they learned pain, and they learned sorrow. How well do we deal with grief? 
or sorrow. You know, we have modern ways of dealing with things like this. You know, send them off to a facility to recuperate. Send them to Hawaii. That always makes you feel better, right? Send them to a, a happy place. Paint the room a certain color. Uh, we look for cures for weaknesses and griefs and sorrows. You know, if that's all we had to contend with, if that's all that we had to contend with, it's enough. But there might be hope for us yet. Because we could find some way to, to make somebody not sorry or feeling sorrowful. We could find ways to deal with grief and things. However, the Lord didn't stop his list with that, did he? After he went beyond the grief and the sorrow, he moves into the neighborhood which we call transgression and iniquity. Also given to us here, now moving into verse number 5, it speaks of our transgressions. You know, the root idea of a transgression is rebellion. That's the idea behind the word. Rebellion. It's a breach of trust. It's a rebellious act that's been committed. Let me ask, who's responsible according to this verse? We are, right? It's our transgressions. It's our transgressions that we read of here. That's the name set next to it. Rebellious actions, breach of trust. He adds the word iniquity. Iniquity. I, I really don't have to define sin for you. We all know it too well. When you start talking about iniquity, that's evil things, wrong things, perverse things. It means that what you have done or what you have said or even who you are has offended someone or something. You've offended them with your character. You've offended them with your nature. You've offended them with your conduct. There's offense written into the word iniquity. Now, you're going to love this. When I read it, I said, this is, this is something else. An English dictionary defining the word iniquity. Ready? This is great. You were vicious, corrupt, degenerate, depraved, putrid, rotten, and unhealthy. I think that's a pretty bad combination, especially when you get toward the end of that list, putrid, rotten, and unhealthy. Those are nasty little words. And that's the way it, 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 it comes out. It's just one big polluted mess when you think it through. But when we go back to verse 5, whose name is attached to it? It's ours again, isn't it? Our iniquities. It corresponds perfectly with Romans chapter 3. There's uh, quite a, a list of things going on in Romans 3. But I'm just going to read to you a handful of verses here. Starting in verse number 10. In case you're just wondering, well, that's Old Testament concept. New Testament, we're, we're better people now, right? Yeah, we've learned the mistakes of the Old Testament folks, and now we've made life better, and we're going to just behave much much better than them. And then Paul starts to write in Romans 3. And you know what? His description gets worse. Listen to this. Starting in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. <laughs> Ouch. We're in trouble already. We just started the verse. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not 
even one. Their throat is an open grave. What a picture. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. Does verse 23 now make sense in the context? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a heavy chapter, isn't it? Next to that whole picture, guess whose name is attached? It's ours. See, God doesn't shrink back from shrink back from declaring our sinfulness. And it stands right before us. Our names are attached to all that we've seen here. Sometimes I confess we do it when we don't realize it. But you know, sometimes we do it on purpose, don't we? We know. We know what's right, we know what's wrong. The commentary just comes down to this one fact that sinfulness is our condition. It's our condition. And the world has a habit of minimizing sins, of, of maximizing others. We put it on a scale of what's worse. What's worse? Killing a child? That's a heinous crime. Telling a fib? It's a little more innocent. Robbing a bank? Well, that's bad. Ah, I shouldn't say this. Exceeding the speed limit? Uh, that's nothing. You know how we are? We compare one act to another. With this one bigger, this one smaller. We aim for smaller because then we have something else to point at, don't we? But Scripture doesn't do that. When it sets before you big sin, little sin, however you want to call it, He calls it all sin. And when He adds it up, whether it's the greatest of sin or the smallest of sin, it brought about the death of Christ, didn't it? It brought about the death of Christ. See, God takes sin very seriously. And we ask, what's our responsibility here? What's our responsibility? We are sinful beings. Sinners by nature, sinners by act, sinners by choice. We are sinners. Scripture makes that clear. I don't have to really prove it, do I? So if you move from that in Isaiah 53, the, the realization of sinfulness, he moves right into the wrath of God. Romans did this as well. Chapter 1 of Romans, verse 28, or verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath is revealed. And God's wrath is targeting sin. God takes it seriously. And so when we go into this chapter, Isaiah 53, verse number 5, notice the actions that go along with God's uh, um, wrath. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Chastening. Scourging. These are four words just in verse number five alone. The actions of our Lord, our God, in His wrath. 
wrath is a passionate anger. Now, very interesting, in, in the Greek there are two words for wrath. Uh, one is this uh, word thumos. We get the word heat from it, really. Yeah, we use it for a lot of different uh, purposes. But thumos is an explosive, sudden outburst of anger, picture of volcano all of a sudden erupting. Boom! That's thumos. All right? It's a powerful display. It's usually strong, destructive, and over with before too long. However, that's not the kind of word that's used directly about God's wrath. This word is orge. The word orge is a, is a passion that is lasting a long time. All right? In the New Testament, it says, His wrath abides. What a picture. It abides. And it, it just sits. It's active. It's powerful. It's strong. It's passionate. But it remains so. It's not going to be relieved anytime soon, is the picture of this word. It's a powerful word. Now, the way the Lord is expressed here in verse number 5, two words particularly, the word chastening. We know the word. It's the concept of uh, um, the parents' uh, care in disciplining their children. They chasten them. They, they do it for their good, right? So we say, this is, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts. You know better. But that's what we say. Because we're doing it for their good. We're chasing them. And, and God chastens his children, doesn't he? Scripture says so. That's one thing. But scourging. Scourging is the other word used here. One little commentary writing out scourging. They put three words next to it. Horrible, horrid, hideous. Three words to define the scourging. And I don't know if you've ever had it defined to you, but it certainly will express God's emotion if you see what is used here. The idea of scourging was to take a, a handled several cords of leather attached, each one weighted with jagged pieces of bone or metal to make the blow more painful. It's like a whip. And the victim is tied to a post. The blows are applied to the back and to the legs. And if the executioner was especially cruel, he'd let it swing around to their face and around their belly. Often, the victim would faint and many times would die because the Jewish technique for scourging involved 39 lashes. One would be enough to do me in. 39. They stopped at 39. They were allowed by law to do 40, but they stopped short because in case they missed count, they stopped at 39. 39, 40. Do you realize Jesus was scourged before he was crucified? Scripture shows us that, right? He was scourged before he was crucified. Those blows belong to us. Because the scourging is related to our sin. That's the picture we have clearly set up. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him by his scourging, we are healed. It was because of us and what we have done that Jesus Christ was scourged. 
that he was scourged. We have that set before us here. And you say, well, what, what do we do with this? You know, do we, do we look at sin as, well, it's just a temporary thing? Or do we see it in light of the way God presents it? Some people prefer to think that it's, well, it's just momentary. We'll get through it. We'll get by it. If we just ignore it, it'll go away. That's a philosophy I've used many times on several things, but it won't work on sin. Jesus Christ was chastened and scourged on our behalf. It would be nice, folks, if we could put all this in the, the department of being weak or diseased. It's just a hereditary problem. It's universal, I know. It tends to be contagious. It's incurable. It's defiling. All these things. But God says it's filthy and it deserves my wrath. And if you can conceive this, the nature of God's wrath, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, it would never be satisfied. It would never be satisfied. Those who go into a Christless eternity realize the reality of what God has said. The wages of sin is death. And does God change? No. The wages of sin is death. And he who has not believed shall be condemned. And if a soul enters into the place of eternal torment, that's the sentence that God has declared. But after a thousand years, that soul could look up, and if it were written on the sky above them, it would say, He who has not believed is condemned. And if that soul could last another million years in that and be exhausted by their pains and their agonies and look up again, they would see that statement still there. The one who has not believed is condemned. And if eternity somehow could absolutely run out of time, the condemnation never will. That's frightful, isn't it? The condemnation stays because they are condemned already. Scripture says that. The wrath of God abides on them. Condemned still. Condemned still. Entering into a state that can never be altered. My friends, I am so thankful for a Savior, aren't you? When you consider what we were under, that wrath that would never be satisfied by anything we could ever, ever do, in steps our Savior. And He does for us what we can. Here in this same chapter, verse number 12, we find some very beautiful words. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressor. I love that. He interceded for the transgressor. That was us. He interceded for us. That word intercede is a great word. It goes beyond just the concept of praying. It has the whole idea of standing between. Standing between. Great pictures we have of this in the Scriptures with Moses begging for the life of the people. God had taken Moses up on the mountain to receive the law. You recall? And as he's up on the law, 
We know from the Scriptures how things were really going bad down below. The people couldn't wait any longer. They needed a God to worship, and so they commanded that Aaron make the golden calf, which he did. And the people started to worship the calf, and pretty soon it was just a rotten... They were exhibiting iniquity, all right? Full-blown, going on down there. And God says, Moses, get down there. Your people are not acting right. Better go see. So Moses heads down the mountain. Do you know what he did, though, in the meantime? He prayed for those people. He interceded for those people. He, he pleaded, pleaded with God not to, not to consume them in his wrath. God says, I'm going to take care of them. Just step back, Moses, and I'll take care of them. And Moses says, no, spare them. They're your people. You brought them out. This is your testimony. This is a, a sign of your faithfulness. The whole world is watching, Lord. If you wipe them out, they're going to say, well, you've got a real angry God that doesn't deal well with people who get in trouble. And so he says, what? Don't. And the Lord was gracious. He spared them. And not many, many days after that, we see the rebellion of Korah taking place where a whole group of people standing in opposition to God's will, the ground opened up, swallowed them alive into the ground, closed back up again. You would say, that's pretty alarming when it comes to the wrath of God, right? The very next day, the people wake up in the morning, and they're mad at everybody, including God. And they start rebellion all over again. And they come marching in, in that kind of a mood, grumbling and complaining, thinking God is unfair, thinking Moses is unfair. How could they destroy God's people and all these other things? And God says, Moses, move out of the way. That's my little paraphrase. But there you got it. Just step back or take care of them. And Moses is down on his face again in front of the Lord, pleading on their behalf. Pleading for them. A plague breaks out. Terrible plague. And Moses, while he's in the midst of a prayer, he turns over to Aaron. He says, Aaron, quick, get your censer, get in a, a fire going on it, and get out there and intercede for these people. And Aaron grabs it, and he goes running out there. The guy's a hundred years old. It must have been a great picture. But he's running out there with his fire pen, and he's standing, as Scripture says, between the dead and the living, pleading for them. What a picture that is. That's an intercessor. One who stands between the dead and the living. And Christ is the epitome of that, isn't he? Because that's exactly where we were. We were the ones under the wrath. We were the ones who deserved the punishment. And here Christ stands in our place between us and the wrath of God. And he takes the full blow. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible. There's a song. I just love this song. Crown of thorns, the spear deep in his side. And the pain should have been mine. The rusty nails were meant for me. Yet Christ took them and let me go free. I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on that cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's Son, took my place. What a beautiful, beautiful message this gospel is. I know you have to wade through the real dark black stuff to see the light. 
when you see Jesus Christ and you see the Savior we're referring to here and see that he's interceded on our behalf, that's what he said that night. This sorrow, this grief, the, the, the transgression, the iniquity, all of it, Jesus said, I will suffer on your behalf. The sins that you and I have committed have greatly angered a holy God and He's given to us a remedy. What a gracious God we have. He's given to us hope in the midst of the whole picture because He states so clearly in 1 Timothy 2, He says, there is one mediator between God and man and that is the man, Jesus Christ. One mediator. He gave His life as a ransom for all. Now go back to your Luke passage again and see these words one more time. Verse number 19. This is my body which is given for you. Holding up a cup. Next verse. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We remember that when we participate in this communion service. We have a, what we call an open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of this church to partake in this, because we don't think that Christ died just for us. He died for those throughout the world. And, and as we stand before Him today... This bread and this cup is for you if you have received Christ as Savior. Is He your Savior? That's the first place to go this morning. Because if He's not your Savior, you're still under the wrath of God, aren't you? And there is no remedy apart from Jesus Christ. And so I make an appeal to you today to understand your place before His throne right now. Either you're standing before Him under His wrath, or you're standing before Him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're one or the other. And I would trust that by now you have received Christ as your Savior. He's the only Savior. The only one who can do what we needed the most. Take the penalty for our sin. And if that's where you are this morning, when you take of this bread... When you take of this cup, would you remember two words? For me. For me. It ought to make you very thankful indeed. We can reflect all we want this morning about how terrible our sins are. Yes, it led to the death of our Savior. But as a believer, let's also be thankful. Thankful that Christ is our intercessor. Thankful that he took the penalty that we deserve. That is something I rejoice in. I love to remember him at this table. This is what he's done for me.